Welcome to session two of nine for the uh, what we're calling uh, Church History 201, I Will Build My Church. Hopefully you recognize that phrase, I will build my church as being Jesus in Matthew 16, 18. In that, and you know by now that the Greek word there is ekklesia, the called out assembly of God's people, and that he's making a contrast to the called out assembly of God's people that Moses had built, that was built on the law of Moses and the covenant God made in, at Sinai and, and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to take a new people out of that old people and establish them in a new covenant, and they'll be my uh, called out assembly. So uh, that process has been going on for just about 2,000 years now. Uh, the resurrection of Christ, no one knows for sure if it was in 30 A.D. or 33 A.D., but all the things that, that theologians and historians know about the Passover and how it all works out, it has to be one of those two options. And so uh, Pentecost happened 50 days later, which is considered the birth of the church. So we're actually coming up in the, the next 14 to 17 years on 2,000 years of church history. And of course, most church histories, as this one does, goes back a little bit to the intertestament period, although this one doesn't do much with the period between Malachi and the coming of Christ. Um, if you ever get a chance to read on that, that will help you a lot in understanding your New Testament and, and your Old Testament. But um, anytime you get to study the intertestament period, um, that's, that's a good thing to do, and, and will shed a lot of light on your New Testament for you. Um, but this book starts with with uh, the the life of Christ. So this one is actually just passed as as the uh, subtitle: a survey of two thousand plus years of church history. We're just past two thousand years. Now, last time I believe we covered the forward, some highlights on it, the prologue, and the introduction to section one, the age of Jesus and the apostles from six B.C. to A.D. seventy is section one. And then section 1 includes chapters 1 and 2, of which we covered chapter 1 last time. And that's all the further we got, right? So um, this may seem a little unusual to you, but we're actually now going to cover chapter 47, which was what, if you're, if you're following the assignments in the syllabus, that was actually something we were supposed to cover last time. That was supposed to be read for session one. We just didn't get that far, and I and I want to spend some time on that. Now, um, why that? I I don't know if you've ever read a everyone everyone's you know read a play or watched a movie or read a book that starts with the conclusion. And then maybe they use, they'll go, and they'll go off into a dream or something. This is how we got here. So what I actually kind of want to do is talk a little bit about the second to last chapter in the, in the book, because I kind of want to focus on, that's, this is where understanding what God is doing in our day and age, in, in, in seeing if we can become a community of Christians that can purposely build a life together, where we put our finances, our, our studying, and our, our relationships, and all that God is building in our midst uh, on the line to, to be a part of what he's doing in the whole earth, or at least in some significant portion uh, beyond 
uh, Darst Avenue, Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> so, um, you know, the scriptures say that the sons of Issachar were men who understood the times to know, with knowledge of what Israel should do. Uh, it, the scripture says, after David had served the purpose of God for his generation, he went to sleep with his fathers. You know, one of the most important reasons to study history is to try to get some kind of a fix on how is Jesus, you know, Jesus said, I will build my church. That's something he's actively doing at all times among his people until he comes back again. And he's working toward what we call the eternal decree or the foreordained eternal plan of God to fill the whole earth with his glory. And he's coming back to prepare a kingdom prepared for himself. The modern idea that was birthed into the church called dispensational premillennialism, that the church is going to get, the things are going to get darker and darker, and the church is going to grow smaller, and there's going to be just little pockets of real Christians left over. And of course, every group that teaches that thinks we're the ones that are going to be the faithful ones, you know. <clears throat> Everyone else is messed up. And, uh, that idea is a relatively new idea in church history, and not at all scriptural. We just have been led to believe it's scriptural because we've been given a wrong set of glasses to read scripture with. So um, as one way of counteracting that, uh, I, I want to kind of cover uh, chapter 47, which he calls Shift to the Global South, What is the New Christianity? Now, some of you who might be fans of a guy named Philip Jenkins, I know my wife and Nathan Hager are, and uh, <clears throat> he wrote a book called The Coming of Global Christianity, and some of the ideas in this chapter are taken from Jenkins's ideas. So, um, I, obviously, if you read carefully the introduction to the book, and if you look back at some of the first three editions to the book, the first three editions to the book didn't cover anything outside of what God was doing in Western Christianity up to the year 1900. So uh, this R.L. Hackett, is it? R.H. or R.L. Hackett, um, what's the, 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 the guy? R.L. Hackett has added uh, more information about Gnosticism woven throughout the entire text because modern Christianity has got a lot of Gnosticism in it. And hopefully you'll come to understand that and see that as we go. And he's added this explosion of Christianity worldwide that's happened in the last 120 years or so. Okay, so um, let's let's cover so some highlights. Now what I've tried to do, by the way, with Deanna's notes is I've... Uh, taken the system we have <clears throat> to create these notes, and I've underlined some and highlighted others in bold print to make certain points stand out. Uh, so some of them I'm going to just read and talk about. In 1900, only 10% of the world's Christians lived in the continents of the South and the East, but a century later, at least 70% of the world's Christians lived there. So we're talking about South America, Africa, uh, and, and honestly, he deals with a little bit how this global south thing is not really a good word, but nobody's come up with a good word to explain it. Uh, you might say the developing nations. That might be a, <clears throat> a way of looking at it. But Christianity has spread in South Korea, Singapore, 
Uh, China, mainland China, not so much uh, free China, Taiwan. Ta uh, Taiwan is one of the few countries in the world that does not have a big move of God. About 3% of people in Taiwan are Christians. Japan is another country where the gospel is not exploding. Only about 1% of Japanese are Christians. But South Korea is, the gospel is exploding so big that South Koreans send out missionaries all over the world. And the world's largest church that's about 2 million members is in South Korea. Um, estimates are around 30,000 people a day come to Christ in communist China. So, um, the gospel is exploding throughout Central America, South America, all of Africa, all of Southeast Asia, all of China. Uh, it's making big headway in India, uh, not as dramatic as some places, but, but very much so in India. And it's, uh, you know, it's a phenomena that's so, so important and so big that, as you know, uh, we talk in this church a lot about the fundamentalist modernist controversy that began after the Civil War, and how the modernists, uh, after they began to embrace Darwinism in an anti-supernatural worldview, and reduced the Bible from historical accuracy to mythical stories, little by little that opened the door to, you know, Christianity is whatever good feeling we want to have about our fellow man. <laughs> <clears throat> and it's, it becomes shaped by our culture instead of shaping the culture. So, um, whereas the conservative side of Christianity has tended to escape the culture and therefore have little impact on the culture, the liberal side has engaged with the culture, but in, in, has pretty much become a reflection of the culture. So, um, you know... Um, you know, in the liberal circles, the whole idea of you can ordain homosexuals as, as bishops and, and so forth, um, that kind of became in a lot of, in, in at least in the Anglican communion worldwide and the Lutheran communion, uh, you know, in America, with the, the Lutherans split into the conservative Lutherans called the Missouri Synod Lutherans and the liberal Lutherans called the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America who took more of the modernist route, and they began to ordain homosexual ministers and, and so forth um, a little over a decade ago, I guess. And so, um, you know, this has caused quite a bit of upheaval. We're not going to go into that much into, like, in America, the Episcopalian Church has split. There's been big lawsuits over who gets to keep the building. My brother-in-law, Catherine's brother, is... Uh, very godly believer who happens to be an Episcopalian, and 96% of their church voted not to go along with the Episcopalians' liberal tendencies and to return back to a Reformation, biblical uh, Anglicanism, and so forth. And the Episcopalian church sued them for their buildings and won. They lost, they, but they held their ground, and they, they are a church of several thousand people, with, and they lost, the, the Episcopalian church confiscated all their money, even funds that were designated to build a new church in case they lost this law fee suit. Does the Ireland Light and Supreme Court uh, ruled that, that even money that had been designated for special offerings and so forth like that was forfeited to the liberal side of the Episcopalian church. Yet they didn't back down, and they are currently meeting. 
meeting with several thousand people in a big gymnasium every morning, and they've just bought some property and they're going to rebuild rather than submit to the to uh, this kind of nonsense. Thank God for them. So, you know, so these these kind of things are happening worldwide, and uh, one of the outcomes of it is most of English Anglicans have become very liberal, not all, and uh, uh, most American Episcopalians. So in their national uh, and worldwide conferences recently, the African bishops of the Episcopalian Church, who are on fire for God, by and large charismatic, uh, very biblically conservative, believe the Bible's the inerrant word of God, believe in a literal biblical, you know, most Episcopalian ministers don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus or the virgin birth or anything supernatural. These guys have held the line on this. And so, but the African church has become so big that it made the the uh, uh, Episcopalian church in America back down and repent on certain things. And uh, basically said, you can't be part of our communion if you're going to do these things. So just to, just to put this in perspective, where Anglicanism started, of course, with the English Reformation, which we'll eventually study. And today, about one million Anglicans who were born in England and uh, are you know, water baptized, growing up in the Anglican church that still have enough faith that they go to church, about one million attend church in England every Sunday. Over 40 million Anglicans attend church in Nigeria every Sunday. And they're on fire for God and biblically conservative and not buying the whole modernist side of things. So this coming of global South Christianity is, is a, an amazing phenomenon. And it's, a, it's an important opportunity for us in Grace Christian Fellowship because by and large, the, the fundamentalist side of things that tends to be a little Gnostic and a little escapist of reality that doesn't understand a bigger concept of the kingdom of God that we're trying to, to build here and restore the church and the necessity of Christian businesses and bringing the, the dominion claims of Christ to every theater of human activity, um, you know, last night, uh, several of the people who Catherine and I were privileged to lead to Christ in the 80s and help them get started came to us and said, you know, you opened our eyes to the, to the, the claims of Jesus Christ apply to business, science, uh, marriage, economics, economic systems, to, to everything. And so much so that we named our school Dominion Academy. And, uh, and we get it. And we still are, you know, 30 years later, we're still pursuing the claim, sovereign kingship rights of, of Jesus Christ need to be pressed out into every area of a human activity. Now, that global uh, South Christianity is primarily charismatic Christianity, mostly. They believe in the gifts of the Spirit as being for today and so forth. But they tend to be dualistic, where it's the spiritual side of life and then and uh, the natural side of life, and what we are about is the spiritual side of life only, and they need a bigger vision. And so people will go, why would you want to plant a church in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, when, there's, when the gospel is exploding there? You ought to worry about saving America when the gospel is shrinking in America and Christianity's influence is declining rapidly in America because nobody's building this kind of church there. So 
you know, as, as time goes on and you've read, read more of our books on eschatology and ecclesiology and understanding a bigger vision of what we're trying to do, God is going to re- eventually restore that truth, because the Scripture says he will, to his whole church in a movement that will be quantitatively and qualitatively much bigger than the Reformation is coming. I hope it'll be called the restoration, because that's the best word I can think of to capture what God, in, in fact, wants to do, is restore a complete biblical view of all of life and the restoration and recapturing of all things for, for, for the crown rights of Lord Jesus. All right. So the next statement says that uh, worldwide Christianity is actually moving towards supernaturalism. Uh, Christianity has been spreading geographically and increasing numerically. At the dawning of the 21st century, 480 million in Latin America, 360 million in Africa, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, He talks about some examples where Southern Christians use their numerical clout to promote uh, biblical ideas. Notice I'm one, two, three, four, five bullet points down. In 1900, Africa had just 10 million Christians out of a continental population of 107 million, about 9%. At the turn of the 21st century, the Christian total stood at 360 million out of 784 million, or 46%. And that percentage, scholars predicted, was likely to continue rising because African Christian uh Christian African countries had some of the world's most dramatic rates of population growth. Africa will likely surpass 500,000 Christians by 2020 to 2025. Now, America has about 320 million people. So we're talking about more Christians than America by another, you know, one. multiply the number of people in America by 1.6, and that's how many Christians we're looking at in Africa sometime in the next four to ten years. Who need theological training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, that's, that's pretty amazing. Now, some estimates are as low as 3 million, some are as high as 10 million, but almost all people who study this, what, one of the things that's difficult with Africa is they don't have the accuracy of census that we might have like in the United States of America or something. So some estimates are, but, but some things you need to come to grips with if you're going to understand just Africa is the number of Christians uh, at, at, in the year 1900, estimates are anywhere from 3 million to 10 million, depending on who you're reading. The number of people is anywhere from like 107 million, as this guy says, to 150 million, but uh, 140 million or so. That's but whereas we were about 200 million people in America, and we're growing at this very slow rate. One of the things you need to understand is that uh, outside of Islam, Europeans are actually declining in numbers. To sustain a zero population growth, the average family has to have 2.1 children. And uh, so a lot of you need to have another 0.1 children. No, no, I'm just, <coughs> <coughs> uh, 
uh, but that's not being fruitful and multiplying. That's just staying even. Okay, so and men, most uh, most uh, European countries that were once Christendom, that are now bastions of secular humanism, the average family has 1.4 to 1.7 children, and so the European population is declining. Now, because Islam has a, a kind of warped dominion theology, Muslims have big families, and it's already numerically too late. Most European countries are going to be predominantly Muslim in your lifetime. And there's no explosive Christian growth there. But all through Africa, Central America, South America, and so forth, you're going to see a big clash between Islam and Christianity. And, uh, so, and um, Christ intends to prevail by a different kind of sword, the sword of the word of his mouth and the changing of human hearts. So um, God is going to make it increasingly manifest what the true spirit of Islam is and uh, the incredible amount of murder, hatred, and wickedness that, that the, true, the true spirit of Islam is all about. When you hear that jihad and so forth is not like all Muslims, it's because many Muslims, like many so-called Christians, are actually secular humanists with a little bit of Muslim tradition in their life. But the spirit of Islam, the true to those who take their faith seriously and so forth, Conquering the world by violence is what they believe. And I believe we're going to see tens of millions of Muslims come to Christ in our lifetime. So, back to Africa. Whereas European population, is, at least the, the descendants of Christendom, primarily Caucasians, are, is actually shrinking throughout most of Europe. And it's still growing in the United States, the population overall. But for the most part, the Caucasian population isn't growing much. Uh, in Africa, the population is exploding. Estimates are there's probably about 800 million Africans now. And... Um, I think he quotes a figure of, what, 784 million, but that was at the turn of the century. There's probably over 800 million Africans. And so what's happened is the, the Christian population is growing faster as a percentage than the whole population. But both the whole population and the Christian population are exploding, exploding all throughout the continent of Africa, which I believe is around 38 countries. Is anybody more up to date than that? Because, you know, there's some political upheaval. All right, so last point on the page. Global Christianity is primarily charismatic Christianity. Aside from the first blessing of conversion and the second blessing of sanctification, which was kind of an idea that the pre-Pentecostals and charismatics had uh, in the 19th century, the third blessing would include an empowerment from the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the outward sign of speaking in tongues. 
Now, some people call charismatic theology second blessing theology. Some people call it third blessing theology. If you flip over, I'm not going to cover the Keswick movement and the Welsh revival and that kind of stuff. But there was this kind of whole idea that eventually led up to the outpouring of the charismatic and Pentecostal renewal, which was that there is some second encounter with the Holy Spirit and people kind of differentiated those as three different encounters, but really it's uh, two. So, um, jumping down to the third bullet point on the second page, if you don't know who William J. Seymour was, he was an African-American preacher who began the Azusa Street Revival in 1906. For a time, he worked with Charles Fox Parham, a man who noticed the lack of power in the Christianity of the U.S., and he attributed this lack of knowledge and practice to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Seymour requested and received a license as a minister of Par Parham's apostolic faith movement. However, Seymour soon broke with Parham over Parham's harsh criticism of the emotional worship at the Azusa Street Revival and the inner mingling of whites and blacks. That was quite controversial and has always been part of Pentecostal Christianity. And it is a time. Now, I listed a book there if you want to ever study this movement. But I want to tell you a little bit about the history of, of, of the Pentecostal movement in, in the 1900s in America and then worldwide. Charles Parham was a Methodist minister in Topeka, Kansas, who ran a little Bible school. Sorry, I get too emotional. Uh, if anyone's ever been over to the, seen the white old mansion that's, over next to the Buddhist temple over there, where the first church that I pastored actually grew from 35 people to 100 people in that mansion. And uh, um, it once was, before, before we took it over, it was actually the Dayton Bible College. And so Parham ran this little Bible college, and he basically said to his students one day, we need to figure out why the New Testament Christians were so zealous uh, why they expanded so quickly, why they were so powerful, why they had so much deeper life of community than we have today. What's, what, is, what is it that we're missing? And he asked the students not to compare notes, and he asked them not to discuss it with each other, but to come back with papers on this. And all of the students came back saying this experience called being filled with or baptized in the Holy Spirit with the, with the Book of Acts evidence of speaking in tongues is what's behind this. And that's what we need. So they began to seek God for the baptism of the Spirit. Charles Parham, I'm sorry, William Seymour was a, was a black young man who because of the times had to sit in the hallway during classes, he wasn't allowed to come in the classroom with the white students. But he was in out in the hallway taking notes and seeking the Lord. And if so uh, they began to seek the Lord for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And as the story goes, documented by lots of witnesses, and uh, at midnight, 
1901, January 1st, at the exact moment of the turn of the century, a lady began to speak in fluent Chinese who'd never heard or spoken in Chinese before. And she spoke in Chinese for six days. Later that night and throughout the next day, others began to speak in tongues. Some were recognizable languages, some were not, as we see in Acts 2. 16 languages identified as recognizable, which means 104 were not. So uh, they actually brought in linguists who listened to her. She wrote in Chinese, but she had no idea what she was saying. Seymour, William Seymour, uh, went out to Los Angeles, California, and had a little house in, uh, there, and he did not receive the baptism in the Spirit in 1900. But in 1906, he began to hold uh, Bible studies in his home, and he began to say, what we need to do is seek the baptism in the Holy Spirit. After a few months of this, People started getting baptized in the Spirit, and the house filled up so much that people were standing in every window looking in to these meetings. Eventually, William Seymour himself got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and eventually the city of Los Angeles fire marshal came and shut the meetings down because it was totally unsafe. <laughs> there were so many people in the house and in the porch they were, uh, I don't remember if, I don't believe the porch ever collapsed her, but I think they were just afraid it would. Um, so because they, the largest percentage of these people were African-American, and of, uh, in those days, uh, that would mean uh, much more financially poor than most African-Americans are today, even though most African-Americans are more poor in relation to the population uh, as a general rule. It would be even more pronounced back then. So because they had very little resources, uh, what they were able to find was a stable on a street called Azusa, Azusa Street, and it was a horse stable. And they went in and began to shovel the horse manure and the hay out and to wash it down, and they took scraps of boards and made them into benches. They they weren't padded. They were just benches that you could get splinters in your butt and whatever else. And uh, they began to have these revival meetings. Over from 1906 to 1914, uh, literally millions of people came and got baptized at the Holy Spirit at the Azusa Street Revival. And Pentecostalism was born to stay. There was this, uh, because they were coming out of fundamentalist evangelicalism with dispensationalism and dispensational premillennialism, they bought all of that and more so. So if you know anything about the fact that legalism is born out of antinomianism, we've taught on that a lot of times here, and if you're newer, you know, just talk to some of the older people about how that works. But but the the baptism in the Spirit will bring you a genuine desire to be more holy. But when that's rooted in antinomianism, it'll usually work itself out as legalism. How you dress and, and whether you wear makeup or whatever. Personally, I don't wear makeup. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess, suppose I would if I was on TV or whatever and they made me. But uh, I wouldn't know how to do it, though. Um, anyway, so... 
uh, thousands and thousands of people came. And the testimonies, if you ever get a chance to watch some videos or read books on this, it's just amazing. Um, you know, there was a journalist from Israel who came, speak, who spoke Hebrew, and he came to write a, an article mocking this. And most of the press articles all over the world were mocking, and they really criticized how many black people they had and the intermingling of the races because they had a fair percentage of white people in these meetings too. Parenthetically, I hope you will catch my heart and I hope you'll even walk with us for a lifetime over just this one issue. My This thing that I, you know, you have to kind of decide what issues you're willing to fight and die for. And I am willing to fight and die for this thing that we have to have an interracial church. We, we eventually have to, without compromising standards of knowledge or integrity, have to have black men who've been discipled, who are knowledgeable, who have character, who have work ethic, and who have been discipled for a number of years and so forth, rise up and be leaders based on the fact of their character, their anointing, their charisma, and irrespective of what color and nationality they are. And I'm not happy with the fact that probably 35 or 40 percent of our church is black. I won't be happy until 35 or 40 percent of our leadership is black. And that's the hill I'm going to fight and die on because I think it's the number one issue of the world today. All over the world, even where Christianity is exploding, people are building churches that are homogeneous the same color, the same nationality. So there's Korean churches and Rwandan churches and, and so forth. And I believe before God's done, there will be just churches on fire for Christ. And everyone who loves Jesus in a city will worship, serve, live together. I believe that will happen in, in history. Not, probably not in my lifetime. But I wouldn't want to limit God. Maybe I'll be like Caleb, 120 years old, limping in <laughs> and to see see some of these things. <clears throat> you can wheel me wheel me wheel me in on the wheelchair. Right? Um. Anyway, um, I believe uh, that this whole uh, interracial thing is the issue of our times because almost nationwide less than seven percent of american churches are are integrated in any noticeable fashion we have integrated every other aspect of american culture by federal laws but when push comes to shove the black students at the schools hang out with the black students the white students hang out with the white students and when they have the opportunity to worship they don't worship together and I believe there's no issue bigger than that. So, uh, by the way, out of the Azusa Street revival began to, uh, most Pentecostals had come out of Methodist, Christian Missionary Alliance, Nazarene, 
in other uh, fundamentalist and evangelical movements of the 19th century and, and brought in sort of the same theological paradigms and the same ecclesiology, that is doctrines of the church, and the same negative eschatology and so forth. But most of them were not welcome in their former evangelical churches. And sometimes they were persecuted to the level that people would drive by their house and shoot up their house with machine guns and firebomb houses and things like that. It was as, it was as, uh, as intense as what Ku Klux Klan people did to, to black people in the South at times. So uh, in, from 1910 to 1920, most of the major Pentecostal denominations that we have today, like the Assemblies of God, the Pentecostal Holiness, the Open Bible, and so forth, these denominations were formed. The Assemblies of God was formed in 1914, and it's right now the fastest growing denomination in the world, planning around 14,000 churches a year worldwide, and, uh, and by, by far, the, the largest Protestant denomination. Not that I want to be a denominational person. Oh, I see that halfway down the page on page two, I actually mentioned that Seymour had to live in the hallway. Sometimes uh, Deanna has helped us with, uh, if there's a number there, then it's probably the book's point, uh, and it's on that page of the book. If there's GW in small print, it's probably my point. Sometimes Deanna's helped us with that. Also, uh, sometimes I've put websites where you could uh, study more about that if you want. So one of the things you can do if you want is email Stephen Leopold and ask him to send you an uh, electronic copy and he's supposed to turn all those into hyperlinks. I unturn them. I take the, the hyperlink out of them so they'll print nice and black and white. But he'll, he's supposed to turn them all back into hyperlinks. And then you can just click on them instead of having to type them in. If you want to re read any more on any of these subjects. Um, now, let's jump down all the way to where it says three movements of the spirit in the 20th century. The first wave I've already talked about was called the Azusa Street Revival and the Pentecostal uh, churches. Now, there's probably another sub-wave that came out of this. Um, so, in the 1920s, there were both Pentecostal denominations and independent Pentecostal churches. And that gave way by the 1940s to a movement that was kind of called was not kind of called was was often called the Latter Day Rain movement, based on the scripture. This is you know in the Latter Day Day I'll pour out my spirit on all men and so forth. Now the Latter Day Rain movement tended to uh, build large churches centered around one charismatic personality, in the sense that Adolf Hitler was charismatic, John F. Kennedy was charismatic. One personality who was a, a good speaker and dynamic and and so forth and um, and normally had miraculous signs and spiritual gifts that followed the ministry so they were more in a, in a way a lot more of a New Testament evangelist than than more than a shepherd some of these you've heard of because uh, probably one of the most famous was Oral Roberts 
and his son Richard Roberts still leads the ministry of Oral Roberts University that came out of Oral Roberts had great crusades my wife and I used to help a little old lady named Dorothy Walker and my sons used to mow her lawn and take care of her but she uh, the first time I ever scraped off her car when it was icy one day and, and walked her out to the parking lot so she wouldn't slip because she was 80-something years old and so forth. And we, I ended up sitting in the back of her car having her tell me all about what Christ had done in her life. It turned out I was just trying to help a little old lady and turned out like why well, I was the one that got the blessing because she told me about her whole walk with God and how her son, who's now a medical doctor and lives in Louisiana, uh, was born with club feet, and how uh, he had been healed through at an Oral Roberts crusade. And what was amazing, she said that she was actually at this crusade, and God spoke to her before her son got prayed for to give a certain amount of money. And she didn't give that amount of money. She gave less. And Oral Roberts prayed for her son's uh, feet. And uh, you can do with this whatever you will, because you know I'm pretty negative on the whole televangelist thing and the money parts of it. Nevertheless, uh, the the kid's feet were partially healed, and she went home and 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 she sought God about that, and she felt like God spoke to her and said, "Because you weren't obedient in the amount of money I told you to give," so she sent a check for the rest of the money, and her son was was healed the rest of the way. And uh, now you can do whatever you want with that, but. Uh, um, I don't have categories for some of these things, but but this she was a this was a this lady was still going down to the jail to share the gospel every week as an eighty-some-year-old little lady, totally on fire for God and going down to share with all the crack addicts and stuff. Um, so the latter-day rain and uh, some of you probably know Benny Hinn, who's kind of crashed and been in a lot of trouble and stuff. He's kind of the last uh, grandchild of that movement, you might say. So there, there was guys like Ernest Angley, Rex Humbard. Some of you probably heard of Catherine Kuhlman. Uh, these were all big figures in what was called the Latter-day Rain movement in the 40s and the 50s that spilled over into the 60s and so forth. Um, what was the one guy's name? William Branham actually knew a guy named Ern Baxter, who was his Bible teacher in the 40s and 50s. William Brannan, A.A. Allen, and so forth. Now, unfortunately, uh, Pentecostals are kind of known for financial um, scandals, sexual immorality, alcoholism, and everything else. Partly because most of the leaders of the Latter-day Reign movement had tremendous fallings away in terms of uh, alcoholism and so forth. Um, financial scandals left and right. Personally, um, I think there, you have to ask yourself, should we throw out the baby with the bathwater? Here's my personal take on it. I believe that God never intended the gifts of the Spirit to be centered around one personality in a church, but around a body of people. And I, I don't believe God ever intended them for them to be centered around people who don't walk in the light and accountable with each other. I don't even pray for God, people to increase in anointing till they've walked with us two or three years, and I know they're going to be honest about whatever comes good or bad. 
because uh, there's an old saying, the new wine is heady wine. You know what? That most intoxicated people have overestimated opinions of themselves. Been there, done that. And um, some of you know of my particular troubles in 25 years ago in 1991. And honestly, I think I was just too young and inexperienced to have as much anointing and fruit and power as what God was doing through us at the time. And uh, so, honestly, I always, that's why we say focus on the caller before the calling. Focus on character before the charisma. And above all, get well-grounded theologically, biblically, and in terms of the church and accountability. God will test you and, and allow you to have some shortcomings and failings to see if you'll be honest about those. And woe is you if he entrusts much anointing or power when you don't have the guts to be honest when, uh, when you're struggling. I would rather you never touch the power than than to uh, than to not have a habit of walking in the light. So, um, most of those people crashed. Um, they say that um, a, a now one of the things that people have trouble with, but the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. In someone who prophesies powerfully, someone who prays for people who actually get healed, someone who casts out demons and so forth, has nothing to do with how mature they are. Nothing. Moving in the Spirit is a small part of overall Christian maturity, but it can be seductively deceptive. A.A. A. Allen, they say, and I knew a guy that knew him, that he would be so drunk that two guys would have to hold him up and he would call out words of knowledge and, were, and people would be healed all over the audience because the gifts of the Holy Spirit were still so powerfully working in him. And they, I forget if it was him or William Brandon, uh, probably it was William Brandon that... Uh, Ern Baxter told us that, you know, God was so tired of it that uh, he crashed his car into a, a tree on the way home from a crusade one night and killed himself. And God collected him, as, as the, his Bible teacher said. You know, so one of the things you have to understand is, uh, you know, we long to see God do these things. But believe me, the anointing is a seductive thing. The best thing, when I got into some troubles again a little over 25 years ago, the nicest thing anyone ever said to me was Catherine's pastor who said, Greg, you were seduced by your own giftedness. So believe me, uh, charismatic Christianity, Pentecostal Christianity, we need it, but I don't believe God ever intended it, nor does intend it, to be centered around one great guy's gift. And that's part of the reason I don't like the whole TV thing. And uh, God wants to do a plurality of people and the gifts distributed through the body. Now, the second wave, uh, 
the Holy Spirit in the 20th century. Many people call it the charismatic movement, um, which sprung up. Most people will date the beginning of it anywhere from 1959 to 1963. I, God didn't ask people's permission before he did this. One of the most difficult for some evangelical kind of minded people to deal with is that many of the most anointed uh, influential charismatics of the 60s were Roman Catholic. A whole movement of the Holy Spirit broke out at Notre Dame University among Catholic priests and nuns. And uh, um, that the kind of the grandchildren of that movement are still at Steubenville University. Normally, if you, if you meet a Catholic priest today who's on, who really loves Jesus and is on fire for Jesus and really has a high value in the scriptures and the personal presence of the Holy Spirit and so forth, and you ask him where he went to seminary, there's a good chance he went to Steubenville University in Ohio, by the way. You know, there's still a whole group of people that were influenced by this up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, uh, but it, it spread among Baptists, Lutherans. There's a guy named um, Larry the Lutheran Christensen, who was a Lutheran pastor who wrote a book called The Christian Family, Save My Parents' Marriage and Our Family in 1967. Last I heard, he was still alive and living up in St. Paul, Minneapolis, although he's no longer Lutheran. Many of the great leaders, of, um, are, we use a book by um, Tim, what, no, uh, Deliverance from Evil Spirits by Francis McNutt. He was actually a Catholic priest who uh, was known for powerful healings. Uh, and again, these the, uh, among the Catholic charismatics, they actually run a thing called Life in the Spirit Seminars, where they basically say, that you can't, you have to be born again and you have to be saved by grace. That perf you can, performance will not work. I think it was just the one of the bottle, I think it was just the bottle popping up. It was just God confirming the word. <laughs> I think it was the bottle, uh, the air popping back out, popping back into place. Um, I thought I blew one of the lights there, but they're, they're not blown. So, uh, you know, this, uh, the charismatic movement, some people date, say it began to die about 1981. But there was, uh, course, in the 60s, there was also a movement called the Jesus Movement. And especially in the Western states, uh, influenced by a guy named Chuck Smith, uh, in a mo movement called Calvary Chapel, there, there was this sort of big move of planting churches and lots of hippies and young people coming to Christ, most of whom are in their 50s and 60s now, um, who were not charismatic. So the Jesus movement and the charismatic movement had many overlaps. But literally, it was a time period where it seemed like sometimes you could sneeze and someone would come to Christ. I mean, there was just kind of a spiritual, uh, you know, like in 1 Samuel 3, it says, that in those days, the words of the Lord were infrequent, no vision spread abroad. There's times when uh, the body of Christ is more dry. Now, right now, there's pockets of places, like you can go to International House of Prayer in Kansas City, where they've had a 24-7 prayer meeting that's been going on for around 13 or 14 years now, something like that. Um, is it longer than 15? 
it's about 17 years, and you can go to, uh, uh, we use Bill Johnson's book as one of our recommended book called uh, When Heaven Invades Earth, which is a little bit of how the Holy Spirit's, the power of the kingdom is in the spirit and so forth. But um, by and large, there's no big move of God like that uh, that I know of in this nation. And honestly, helping, leading people to get on fire for Christ and 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 like we have prayed for lots of people who've got baptized in the spirit and have gotten and exercise a prayer language and have moved forward in the lord but not that many of them that exercise spiritual gifts that regularly or have really gone maybe as far as what god intends with the things of the spirit but worldwide uh you know the move of god is primarily pentecostal or charismatic and that's basically the sense that uh that you receive the Holy Spirit when you're converted, but there's a greater release of the Holy Spirit called being baptized in the Holy Spirit that would include uh, a prayer language to speak in tongues and build yourself up in the Spirit and so forth. Now, um, most people believe that what happened out of the charismatic movement of the 60s and the 70s is lots of prayer groups in Catholic churches developed, um, but most of those never expanded, so most of them became my parents' age eventually, and there's still lots of that in Florida, but it's tending, dying out at this point. Um, there's hard, I was very good friends with a Catholic charismatic priest uh, here in Dayton, uh, and there was actually a Catholic charismatic community out of a place called Bergamo at one point. You probably know where Bergamo is, some of you. And, uh, but that's long been gone since probably mid-'80s. Um, so... Um, with the mega church movement, the, what the charismatic thing, one of the most important attributes of the Holy Spirit is that He's personable, and on on the one of the things that grew out of the uh, charismatic movement was a more intense worship, things like lifting of hands and so forth. That were at one time that was considered radical in America. Like, you guys clap? Oh, my God. You must be fanatics. You guys lift your hands when you're worshiping? You must be a cult. Uh, you know, seriously. And, you know, I've been at Cedarville chapels, and, uh, and like probably 7 or 8% of the people in the audience are lifting their hands. That's become somewhat mainstream, even in people who are cessationists and don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit as being for today. Because there's always a spillover effect of these things, Right. So, um, I'm going to move on from this subject, but um, as a whole, a lot of charismatic churches uh, came out of other, uh, were born in, in, in uh, late 60s all the way through the 70s. And those churches tended to be community-oriented in small group and have a lot of the same elements of community that we experience here and, and that we focus on here. As a whole, that's become a... The megachurch movement kind of killed all that because it kind of has is, is a measure growth by numbers, not, and it's kind of has a non-personal element of it. You know, you don't spend time with your pastor or each other or anything like that. So um, now, along with that, uh, one of the mega churches was movements was the Vineyard Movement. 
and uh, headed up by a guy named John Wimber. And John Wimber uh, was a wonderful guy. I never met him in person, but attended some of his seminars and so forth, the one in Columbus in 1985. And uh, he used to you know, he had a little bit of humility about himself. He would say, I'm just a fat man trying to get to heaven. <laughs> I always like that. I've taken that mantle on. But uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm following in his footsteps. I'm just a fat man trying to get to heaven. But uh, he was even a little more chunky than me and even a whiter and thicker beard. And he had hair. Um, he looked a little like Santa Claus almost. He's a nice guy. Um, He's, he's long since died, so his, his children and so forth. The vineyard movement moves on. But they kind of introduced a new aspect into it that they believed that the sign of this second experience with the Holy Spirit was spiritual gifts in general, not necessarily a, a personal prayer language called speaking in tongues. So they had began to have lots of people who experienced healings uh, in, in these kind of phenomena over and over again, but didn't necessarily speak in tongues. Um, unfortunately, what kind of developed out of that, eventually after he died and so forth, uh, most there are a few vineyard churches that are kind of known for their worship and known for seeking the presence of the, of the Lord and the Holy Spirit and still have spiritual gifts, but very few. And, uh, of course, some people probably know about the Toronto... Uh, Thing. I'm not going to get into all that. The vineyard people kicked the Toronto people out, actually. And uh, so that was problematic. But, uh, <clears throat> and I, I don't want to get into all that. If you want to talk about it sometime, I'm glad to I'll tell you what I know about it, which I'm sure there's people who know more. But in any case, um, what kind of grew out of it eventually was kind of an idea that, that is very prevalent today that we believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today, but we just don't see many of them. And they're just okay with that. And literally, most megachurches in America are of that persuasion today. Most of them would say, we believe the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today, and if God wants to do that, he can do it. But generally, it's followed with an idea, but we think it would be wrong to focus and seek those spiritual gifts. The problem is, is that if you read 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 accurately and fully, five different ways Paul encouraged us to seek spiritual gifts. And even as non-charismatic of a guy as John Piper says, we should be seeking spiritual gifts because the scripture clearly tells us to. So most mega churches are what a lot of people call the third wave, and again, the third wave, some people, when they use that term, are thinking of we're seeking spiritual gifts, but we don't necessarily think you, you're going to speak in tongues with it. You may or you may not. That, that's as God wills kind of thing. Um, whereas our, we believe that Scripture believes that, that teaches that everyone can receive the gift of speaking in tongues and you, as a prayer language. And that, in fact... Uh, those who get baptized in the Spirit who don't experience that, they could if they were just properly instructed a little bit. And, and we could show you that and prove that to you in the Scripture, in my opinion. So those are kind of three movements of the Holy Spirit. Um, 
There's some other stuff about Darby. Some of you know who he was. Uh, Schofield, Charles Ryrie, last I looked on Wikipedia or whatever, was 90-some years old and still alive at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, Mark Knoll's book is mentioned there. I'm on page three now, Voluntary Christianity and the Baptist. Uh, I don't really want to get into all this. Um, you know, I'm going to have to be selective if we're ever going to get through any of this stuff. Um, I do want to point you out to the fourth dot down where it talks about uh, the uh, what, what kind of happens in, in a lot of evangelical and or charismatic uh, Christianity is there tends to be a focus on the, the life of the Christian individual and his impact on me. If I had my way, we would actually change many of our songs to, from I believe and I this to we. Um, so, uh, I'm not on the worship team, but if you want to change the worship songs to we, I think we could use a lot less radical in, in individualism in our country. Um, it, I do believe that the book When the Church Was a Family, which is on our foundational book list, is an excellent, excellent book. Uh, All right, so go all about halfway down page three to the bold print there. This is from the book. Western readers observe a historical distance between the world as they see it and the world of the Bible. What stands out to these readers is how different their experience is from the New Testament experience. It is frequently noted that for Pentecostals, the New Testament, with its tongue-speaking, healings, demonic encounters, and spiritual warfare, is not strange but the blueprint for how the Christian life is to believe, uh, that is, that's what you get in the, uh, among Pentecostals, and that tends to be the, the, the mindset of people in the underdeveloped world. In other words, um, well, let's read on. Um, even the evangelical and fundamentalist believers in the West develop strategies for explaining the distance between the text and their contemporary experience. If you really go back and study Darby, Schofield, and so forth in the development of uh, anti-supernatural cessationist dispensationalism, what you're going to find is, is this. A lot of theology in America was basically designed to help us get comfortable with the fact that our, that our experience is not as radical, not as committed, and it's not supernatural, and so forth. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of what is taught... Um, frankly, at Cedarville University and places like this, is, is designed to help us Westerners get comfortable with the fact that our Christianity doesn't look much like the book of Acts or the Gospels. Oh, yeah, that's... Uh, all right, do you want to tell it or do you want me to? Uh, I got the microphone, so it'll be going on the recording. <laughs> John Wimber was a baby Christian, and uh, he had not been taught cessationism yet. He was very excited about Christ, and he's reading a lot in his Bible. And uh, he was going to a, a cessationist church, not knowing that he was. And uh, again, he was a baby Christian, and he went up week after week and said to the pastor, that was a good sermon today. I really liked how you brought out this from the Gospel of Mark and so forth. 
And uh, this went on for a few months, and then finally one Sunday he went up and he said, that was a really good sermon today, but when are we going to do it? And he, uh, the pastor said, do it. What are you talking about, do it? He goes, you know, like the Bible says, when are we going to heal the sick, cast out demons, cleanse the leper, preach the gospel to the poor, and, uh, and uh, so forth. And the pastor looked at him very seriously and said, well, we don't do that. We just talk about it. So um, really, it, the, the book points this out, and I really can't labor on it much because I do want to cover a little bit of chapter 2 and 3 in the book today before we quit. Um, although I actually forgot to come up with a discussion question for today. But... Uh, um, jump down to where it says uh, cessationism is the belief still held to, by many in the U.S. that miracles and gifts from the Holy Spirit cease to exist after the completion of Scripture and the initial spread of, God, of the gospel. Now, if you listen to the uh, audios uh, that this, for this class, uh, Donald Fortson III, is that his name, uh, who I like very much, um, actually makes the point that that is completely ridiculous, and he's a cessationist. He says, there are too many testimonies of speaking in tongues, casting out demons, raising the dead, and other kinds of miracles from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century uh, to, to, to believe that speaking in tongues and these other gifts stopped with the apostles. He just said that's just not historically defendable. Because you'd have to say that St. Augustine... Athanasius, every Christian that, that we hold dear and important in the second, third, for Polycarp, Justin Martyr, you have to say they're all lying. Or they're all lunatics. Or they were all deceived. Because no Christians had that idea. Now, uh, some cessationists did begin to develop in the fourth century. And uh, Fortune says, maybe God took away the gifts of the Spirit after the council, Second Council of Nicaea and after Athanasius and others gave a final listing of the 27 books that we receive as the New Testament. Because it seems that when that happened, gifts of the Spirit started to die quite a bit and, and, and to wane in the church. And that's why St. Augustine, hopefully some of you will do that for your I'm going to actually allow as many people as want to do Augustine to do Augustine, and uh, as long as you do different parts of Augustine. So, and so see me if you want to do Augustine, because some of you could do his confession, some of you could do his uh, uh, De Civitas Dei, or De Civitas, however you pronounce it, the city of God. Um, that's the, um, but in any case, Augustine himself was a cessationist in his early Christian experience, and came to believe that was all wet and, and documented literally hundreds of miracles in his classic book, The City of God. And there were hundreds of miracles at the churches he was pastoring in, in northern Africa. So, by the way, that's a theme that you should be aware of, is that much of what saved the church in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century were Africans, who many of whom were black, by the way. Uh, if you want to know who, you know, Athanasius, who saved Christianity uh, single-handedly in his generation, was was uh, called the Black Dwarf because he was short and black. <laughs> and uh, 
Some people think it was a derogatory term. Others say it was an affection term. I don't, I wasn't there. But that was uh, what people called him. What's that? Right, it might have depended on who was saying it, right? So, and, but you wouldn't uh, have the Nicene Creed or, you know, Athanasius made the first uh, list of the 27 books that we call the New Testament. Uh, and if you haven't read his uh, foundational books on the Incarnation and on the Holy Spirit, you should do so. Um, anyway, um, where was I going with this? I kind of lost my train of thought. So cessationism uh, maybe uh, Forson is basically saying maybe that's an explanation. The other explanation that, that was more common throughout the centuries is simply this. Christianity was illegal in the period we're going to try to talk about in chapter 2 through 6 that we'll get to a little bit today, I hope. Um, Christianity was illegal from... From about 64 AD with the rise of Nero as, as emperor until 313 AD. That's why he stops the period we're studying at 312 AD. 313 AD with the conversion of Constantine. Constantine issued what was called the Edict of Milan. It's also called the Edict of Constantine. It's also called the Edict of Toleration. The problem with the name Toleration is that there's lots of Edicts of Toleration throughout the centuries. Not lots, but there's more than a handful. So uh, the Edict of Constantine made Christianity legal. Later in the life of Constantine, uh, later, uh, I would have to kind of go back and look. I forget how much later. One or two emperors later, Christianity goes beyond being legal to being the official religion of the Roman Empire. Now, at that time, Tens and thousands of people became Christians who went through a catechism process, but it became quite questionable whether they went through a new birth conversion process. And they, there is clearly a diminishing of spiritual gifts about that time period. That's undeniable. However, there's never been a time period, nor a century, when spiritual gifts couldn't be found some places among some advocates of spiritual gifts. And that's the case. There's a book I listed there uh, edited by Joel, Jeff Dole it's called um, Ma Miracles and Manifestations of the Holy Spirit, which lists over 10,000 documented testimonies of various Christians from various centuries of speaking in tongues, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, and so forth. And so the problem you get into is to, to maintain being a cessationist, you have to say all of these Christians are liars or they were off their rocker. The, pr the problem with that is many of those Christians are the Christians that cessationists say, if you want to read a good guy, read Bernard of Clairvaux and his devotional material. But the problem is Bernard of Clairvaux was known for 35 miracles a day. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, we want Bernard of Clairvaux wrote some of the bestest uh, devotional literature in the history of Christianity. You'd do well to read his devotional literature. Just get rid of that speaking in tongues and healing the sick and, and healing crippled kids and stuff. Get rid of all that, and he'll be a great Christian, which is what cessationists are trying to do. 
And that's, that's, there's a big problem with that. Bee Warfield uh, basically said that the, uh, he was a, a theologian that I highly recommend on most subjects. Uh, it, you know, he was a Reformed theologian of the 19th century, held that miracles were concentrated in three clusters to give credence to a new revelation. Miracles abounded when Moses delivered the law, when Elijah and Elisha proclaimed the prophecy, and when Jesus announced his kingdom. The problem with that, that's in fact what the Pharisees believed. They said, Moses, we know, was from God, but we they didn't receive Jesus, his teaching, or his miracles, because they had a cessationist mindset. That God only does these miracles when he's announcing a new part of his revelation. So he did it to bear witness to the law. And because Elijah's the fountainhead of the prophets, and that's and then he stopped after that. So they couldn't receive Jesus. And if you really think it through theologically, you on, to say that he only did it in the life of the early church and so forth, you would have to say, that Jesus has somehow changed. That's the clear implication. I will gladly admit to you that I never do miracles, but Jesus still does. Um, and I've seen some and been thankful for them because Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has done them. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Cessationists have a tendency to believe miracles are okay as long as they're in the past, but not now. So, there we go. Flip over to page four. We already kind of pointed out the point at the top of the page. Western Christians, this is a Greg Weissism, not from the book. The top point is from page 502 of the book, The second, which we've already discussed. The second point is my response to it. Western Christians chose this approach instead of repenting and leading their constituents back to biblical reality. In other words, Western Christians on the whole have taken the the, pr the process of saying, well, let's help our people get more comfortable with the fact that our Christianity is not supernatural. And I think that we've also helped our people get with the, that it's not that, that it's not that it doesn't require 100% commitment or the Lordship of Christ, or you could give 2 or 3% of your income, but not 10%, or you could obey God when the sun's not in your eyes, uh, or whatever. We've kind of helped people build rationalizations and excuses for our Christianity not looking much like the Bible. I, I really think that's unfortunately what, what, uh, what we're up against, and we need to confront that first and foremost in ourselves. I think we all do that to some degree. Um, so he basically just goes on to say the Global South people tend to start with the Gospels and Acts, in their thinking about the scriptures. And um, more as Westerners tend to th think of the, God, of the epistles of Paul. I've gone way too long on this subject to develop this, but um, there's basically two possible interpretations of why Paul doesn't, he'll list the gifts of the Spirit, 
Um, he, but he's writing to Christians that he assumes are baptized in the Spirit and move in these realms of the Spirit. So you, there's two possible interpretations of that. One is because every Christian receives the Holy Spirit in that dimension when they're converted. Or two, he's assuming, because it was New Testament practice, that every Christian that he's writing to has had this second encounter with the Holy Spirit, and the churches that he's writing to are filled with those kind of people. There is no way to document that from Paul. Either way. But that would the second would be, of course, my position. And uh, um, in addition to that, the problem is you can't say, okay, because we can't document that Paul is, 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 is writing to people that, in other words, we can't say for sure that Paul is not assuming you get that dimension of the Holy Spirit at conversion. We can't go from there, which is what all Western Christians are doing, and say, so therefore, that's why we don't have healing speaking in tongues and, and all this, because Paul is assuming in all of his letters that the people that he's writing to are practicing all that. That's clear from Paul's letters. So the real question, if you take Paul by himself out of context, is, is, is Paul talking about a second kind of blessing in greater release of the Spirit or not? But he's certainly expecting the Christians to have that in their midst as a normal way of, of fellowshipping in the Spirit together. If you want some better understanding on that, please read Gordon Fee's book called Paul, the Spirit, and the People of God. But it's some pretty dense theological reading. You, you know, it took me 18 hours to read chapter 3. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but that's because I look up every verse in the Greek and write comments. And I, but I had a great time. <laughs> it's like going to picnic as far as I'm concerned. I'm just that this just happens in my study. Um, so... Um, some people have called our modern Christianity moralistic therapeutic deism. Deism meaning we don't expect God to do supernatural things. 